Right, go ahead with the logic. Okay, Mark, logic one and two, Mark. Houston, we are set. We have a cryo press light. Roger, copy, cryo press light. Apollo 11, this is uh, Houston. Minus 10, 9, 8. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello and welcome to Space Gen, the show where you find out all the latest from the space industry. You can catch our episodes on X-Ray FM every Wednesday at 8 a.m. or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and let's get into the news. So what's going on in space? Well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of updates, especially when it comes to NASA and SpaceX, because SpaceX has just confirmed that NASA's former chief of human spaceflight, William Gershenmayer, has joined the company as a consultant as it prepares to launch astronauts for the first time. But who is this guy? Well, let me, let me give you a brief background on him. He led NASA's space shuttle, International Space Station, commercial crew, and exploration programs for more than a decade. So he brings immediately credibility to the company's safety culture. Wayne Hale, who's the former space shuttle program manager, said, Bill was recognized by everybody as being technically well-grounded and very astute. He was known to listen carefully and to make his judgments based on good technical reasons. And then you had Jim Bridenstine, a NASA administrator, demoting Gerson Mayer in July 2019 because he felt the space agency's exploration programs were not moving forward fast enough. Sources reported at the time that his decision shook a number of the agency's partners who were comfortable with the longtime leader of the NASA's human spaceflight program. Some called the engineer in tears after hearing the news. And then you've got, for example, less than an hour after CNBC first reporting the hiring at SpaceX, the head of Russian state space corporation Roscosmos, Dmitry Rogozin, tweeted his congratulations and, quote, I wish my friend success at his new job. In his new position, he's going to be reporting to Hans Konezegman, who's the vice president of Mission Assurance at SpaceX. And although the role is officially as consultancy, it's expected to become a full-time position. SpaceX is poised to launch the first crewed mission of its Dragon spacecraft by June of this year, which is really close now. This guy is going to play a main role in ensuring the safety of those missions and helping SpaceX secure certification for the Dragon Crew vehicle. And going on the same theme, you know, the SpaceX news, well, they're set to become the first private company to launch NASA astronauts in as few as three months from now. And all but guaranteed, after Boeing's competing Starliner spacecraft narrowly avoided a catastrophe in space on its orbital launch debut. So the ultimate purpose, as we know with NASA's commercial crew program, is to ensure that the US once again is able to launch its own astronauts into orbit to the International Space Station. A capability that obviously once the space shuttle program retired in 2011, doesn't, we don't have that capability anymore. Along the way, it's been a pretty bumpy journey. I mean, Boeing, that did actually try to have Congress snub SpaceX back in 2014 to just solely award them the contract to Starliner, but thankfully the company failed. As a result, SpaceX beating Boeing on the 
Not such a race to launch NASA astronauts to the International Space Station would represent an immense and deeply embarrassing upset in the traditional aerospace industry. Essentially, it's a case of, you know, SpaceX and Boeing, it's David and Goliath. So, for the better part of a decade, Congress, most industry officials, and Boeing themselves have argued ad nauseum for the Starliner. And it was very clear that it was supposed to be far safer than anything built by SpaceX. But Boeing obviously has had more experience, uh, heritage you could call it, in the spaceflight industry. However, they've had multiple catastrophic failures. These aren't small things, they're catastrophic. And especially with the recent Starliner orbital flight test. But let's have a little history trip, because this is always interesting. You know, back in the 1990s, Boeing, which was set to lose a competition to build an expendable rocket for the US military, they acquired McDonnell Douglas at the last second, and then they slapped a Boeing sticker on their Delta IV rocket. And that was designed and built mostly all by McDonnell Douglas. So Boeing then conspired to steal trade secrets from Lockheed Martin bidding Atlas V and use that stolen info to mislead the USAF about the real cost of Delta IV, thus securing the more lucrative of the two possible contracts. But this is all just to point out the simple fact that Boeing has far less real experience designing spacecraft than it likes to act like it does. And according to reports, Crew Dragon's inaugural astronaut launch is now tentatively scheduled as early as late April to late May of this year. Really very close now. Really, it's just paperwork, not technical hurdles, that's currently been the source of uncertainty with the Demo 2 mission hardware, which is the Falcon 9 and the Crew Dragon. And that's already in Florida, and it stays away from arriving. So, due to the combination of similar software failures on the Starliner and it suffered it during the first and only launch, Boeing has now to review the entirety of its spacecraft software. And that's going to be a lot because there's more than a million lines of code uh, before NASA is going to allow the company to launch anything again. And there's obviously a very good chance now that Boeing's going to have to repeat the orbital flight test, potentially incurring major delays. In short, it would take nothing less than a miracle or NASA making a public mockery of itself for Boeing's benefit for the Starliner to launch astronauts before SpaceX. Now, again, more SpaceX news. SpaceX is already planning the next big test flight for its future Starship rocket, which is going to be out of the southern Texas Boca Chica facility. As early as mid-March, the company is hoping to fly the test version of the vehicle to a super high altitude and then land it upright on solid ground, a bit like the uh, Starhopper that we saw a couple of months back. And that would obviously prove the rocket can be reused and potentially touch down on other worlds. So SpaceX is noting in its filing that it wants special authority to communicate with its Starship rocket while the vehicle flies to an altitude of 12.4 miles, so that's about 20 kilometers, nearly halfway to the edge of space. Starship would then take off from SpaceX's test facility in Boca Chica, Texas, and the company would attempt to land the vehicle near the launch site using the rocket's Raptor engines. SpaceX also plans to send data to the vehicle's trajectory to both the Air Force and NASA. 
Such a test would be a really big step forward in the development of Starship. A massive new rocket, and SpaceX is obviously building this, they're sending people into deep space. Once completed, Starship's going to be launching with the Super Heavy, which is the bomb half. This is really going very, very quickly, and Elon obviously on Twitter has been posting videos of production, and Elon has said in the past, you know, Starship's going to be able to lift more than 100 metric tons of payload, or carry up to 100 passengers at a time. So, SpaceX filing requests to have permission to fly as early as March 16th? Though it's possible, the test might not occur for quite a while, because the filing requests, they take a long time to process, and that gives the company, usually it's probably going to happen around September 16th. Either way, this is really going very quickly, and I mean, hey, they might pull out a rabbit from their hat, and they might actually get it done for March 16th. Uh, at the rate they're going, uh, they're probably going to have a couple of starships lined up, and they're going to be doing multiple tests. So now, I'm going to talk about President Donald Trump, because he wants to raise NASA's budget to $25.2 billion for the physical year beginning in October. Now this is an increase of 12% over the current year's funding. Nearly half of that total would be funding activities directed towards getting humans first to the moon, then Mars. The budget includes $3.3 billion for human lunar landers, which is part of NASA's Artemis program that we keep talking about, which aims to get us to the moon by 2024. And the new documents also, they do cut several long-targeted programs, then they do introduce new programs that would study ice on Mars, which is another thing that we're learning more and more about. So NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine said that, quote, this is a 21st century budget worthy of a 21st century space exploration, and one of the strongest NASA budgets in history. So this budget request supports NASA's massive SLS, so the Space Launch System rocket, as a backbone for the deep space exploration, but postpones funding for the Block 1B upgrade requirement for larger missions. Now that decision, the budget request said, arose because Block 1B isn't necessary for a human lunar landing, so you can kind of see why they did that. But the main thing is, NASA was getting a budget that was cut and cut and cut, and now at least they've raised up a little bit, so that probably now the Space Launch System, it might actually get that 2024 deadline done. Uh, there was a lot of talk in Congress, you could see people were saying, is this going to be 2028, not 2024? And obviously it looks like a happy situation. We're going to get to the moon probably by 2024, which is only four years. Again, not very long. But this highlights an issue, again, that I've talked about on Space Gen and Future Forecast. We can't rely on governments for space exploration. When you talk about the Wild West, or even if you look back at when people were on boats, they were discovering new continents, there was always a private enterprise aspect to it. You know, there was trade involved. If you went somewhere, you went there to go mine, you created a prosperous community. With space, we're talking about becoming interplanetary, and this is what Elon was talking about with his vision for 2050. We need to have private enterprise in space, and we've got Bigelow with the modules for hotels in space, a little bit like the Werner von Braun space station. We've also got things that are a little closer to Earth with the ISS, now is going to actually have commercial modules. 
and we've got Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic for space tourism. All of these things, they're small little steps, but something like the Starship, something like the Artemis mission, that's going to take us to the moon. We're going to be able to actually have a base there, and possibly we might find something that we need here on Earth like possibly iron. We might have some resources that are elsewhere that we can get that are very, very rare to find on Earth, but aren't so much there. But let's talk a little bit about life in our solar system, because it's quite interesting. We're still not quite 100% on what's actually in our own solar system. We don't even know what's in the bottom of our oceans on Earth, so there's a lot that we can still find out. Now, Titan, which we've talked about before, is the second largest moon in our solar system after Jupiter's Ganymede. Now, there's two unique ways that have convinced some researchers that this moon might host extraterrestrial life. It's the only moon in our solar system with a dense atmosphere, and it's the only body in space besides Earth that's known definitely to have pools of liquid on its surface. In Titan's case, the pools are frigid lakes of hydrocarbons, closer kind of to gasoline for your car, than kind of the oceans on Earth. So some researchers have suggested that complex structures could arise in those pools. You've got bubbles with special properties that mimic ingredients found to be necessary for life on our own planet. On Earth, lipid molecules, like basically fatty acids, can spontaneously arrange themselves into bubble-shaped membranes that form the barriers around a cell of a known life form. So, of course, this is like breaking it down to really basic levels, but the researchers think that this is the first necessary ingredient for life as it formed here on Earth. So on Titan, researchers have speculated in the past and, you know, these bubbles, they might have emerged and these consisted of nitrogen-based molecules called azotomes. But Titan, it's representing a strict case for the limits of life rather than, you know, the best place for life to be. And that's what the researchers wrote in their paper. In this role, if the moon fails, the azotomes are going to be the simulation. They, they just thermodynamically, they're not viable on Titan. And as we know, Titan's like, what is it, negative 300 degrees Fahrenheit? It's, it's, it's definitely not the best condition to have life grow. Uh, but, the, you know, the work, it should help NASA figure out what they're going to do, the experiments and stuff on their Dragonfly mission to Titan, which is planned for the 2030s. It's still theoretically possible that life emerged on Titan. It might, might still be there, we don't know. But the researchers said in a paper that such life would not likely involve anything we'd recognize as a cell membrane. So a bit depressing, but fingers crossed, when the mission comes around, there is life on Titan. Again, this is all news we just had in the last week. This is how quick things are starting to move, and as I've said before, we really are heading into a new space age. So if you like hearing about the news, make sure to tune in every Wednesday at 8am on X-Ray FM, or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and I'll see you next time.